Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I'm your host, Ted Flanagan. Happy to be here. Happy to have Andrew McAllister on the show today. Commissioner Andrew McAllister, third term commissioner Andrew McAllister of the California Energy Commission. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Well, great to see you, Ted. Long time and looking forward to catching up. Yeah. How have you been? I'm doing well, do well. As you know, there's a lot uh, going on in the uh, energy space <laughs> and the, the clean energy transition and lots of very smart people focused on um, forging solutions and getting California kind of to help um, chart that path. You know, I think we are in a leadership position and uh, as it should be, and we're doing a lot of innovative things and, and they're going to be relevant, not just across the nation, but across the globe. So now you look like you're sitting in your office. I see some framed photos or plaques, it looks like, in the background. Is that right? That is right. I've got them fuzzed out, but those are, uh, I'm actually in a dentist's office. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of degrees back there, a lot of plaques, whatever, but uh, yeah. Um, you're, in, you're in Sacramento as we speak. No, I'm actually in my home office. I'm in my home office. Um, I, you know, as most of us, working from home quite often. We're now doing our business meetings, uh, mostly in the office once a month, Yeah, but um, I'm at home. And and maybe it's a point of interest. Uh, a few years ago, I did actually build an all-electric uh, passive house and uh, have been living in it for a few years. And it's fantastic. It's just a better product. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to get to that because I remember when you were, <laughs> when, you were, when you were building it, but before we, before we back up and get into your youth and kind of where you grew up and all that, what, what, what are you working on? What's hot right now? What's, what's on the docket? I guess that's a loaded word in your world. Um, well, lot, several different things. I'm excited about actually about a few different things. Um, you know, I'm the lead commissioner on energy efficiency buildings, I've been doing a lot on data and utilizing kind of big data for good in the policy realm, which I think is unique for a state energy office, um, uh, really, or any regulator to, for that matter. Um, and uh, and also load flexibility uh, is, is something we're working on a number of fronts uh, to kind of harness as a resource to do that tripartite of things, right? To, to underpin reliability, to decarbonize, and to contain costs as we invest in this transition uh, in the electric system. And um, so those are all kind of different activities to put together, um, you know, to, to help help our clean energy transition uh, happen efficiently and, and, and well and quickly. Um, the other thing, uh, which is quite different is, you know, the, the and, and for the rest of this week, actually, uh, there, there's an increasing discussion uh, across the Western states about regional integration of the electric grid potentially. Um, so, you know, not certainly not a done deal, but there's a lot of different different opinions about what that could look like, um, and uh, certainly a fair amount of political content too. But uh, it's interesting, and it's good to be engaged with the states to talk about those issues. You, you seem like you're really thriving in the position. You're in your third term now. It's true. I certainly would not have anticipated uh, being uh, doing this for three terms. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a good gig. You know, it's uh, I've been doing energy my whole career um, since college, you know, since graduation in the early or in the late 80s. Um, and uh, we're able to make a I mean, how many you know roles can you have that, that provide some levers to actually make a difference in people's lives and really 
create a better world for your kids and grandkids. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 very fulfilling in that way. It's got to be. Well, thank you for thank you for what you're doing. Let's let's back all the way up. As a kid, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which has been in the news lately <laughs> in, in <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Nashville way as as a kid, what were you, what were you, what were you thinking about? Were you like me playing sports and knocking around in the woods or what? Pretty much. Yeah. Lots of nature, you know, um, you know, I'm a proud Californian now, just to be clear, Uh, I've been living here for uh, more than half my life. Um, But yeah, just nature, water, humidity, green, you know, summer salamanders, you know, <laughs> snakes and scorpions, you know, in the in the mountains. Um, so then, yeah, that's the then, kind of childhood. And, and then up to Dartmouth, uh, where I had lots of friends that went to Dartmouth up in was it Hanover? Yeah, up in Hanover, yeah. You have um, yeah, and that's where I really started kind of understanding how important energy. Uh, was when I was studying engineering there. Actually, did a double major with uh, art history as my first major and, and engineering as my second major. <laughs> but um, that's got to be uh, an unusual combination. Well, it actually serves me well. It's uh, you know the left brain, right brain. You need both. You know, and and learning how to write that was pretty key, uh, certainly to what I'm doing now. But uh, enter, you know, take thermodynamics and and your head, your mind gets kind of blown uh, about you know there's really no free lunch energetically and so we just have to be very responsible with our energy planning yeah and after that you know that i did spend and maybe we will talk a little bit about that but i did uh, work internationally in developing countries for more than a decade and uh you know there especially in places where the grid is not going to get but really everywhere you're you're not counting kilowatt hours you're counting watt hours you know you really have to be parsimonious with your energy consumption especially if you're you know, your only energy source is a, uh, your only, you know, clean energy source is a small rooftop solar system. You got to be very careful with how much energy you use. So most people across the globe are much more conscious of that than we are here. Yeah. Was Dana Meadows at Dartmouth when you were there? She was, yeah. I had a class with her um, and she was just, uh, I think, just a vision, just just a leading light of sustainability and equity and justice. Yeah. Really amazing, uh, inspiring leader. Yeah, yeah. And then and her husband, you know, her her then partner, Dennis Meadows, actually also, they were key in the Club of Rome and writing, um, you know, the, the um, really just thinking about sustainability and uh, the limits to growth, right, is the big book that they, that they all wrote together. Yeah, I just had Hunter Lovins on the podcast. And she oh, great. Dana Meadows. And I, when I was at Rocky Mountain Institute, I went back and spoke at Dana Meadows' classes each year at Dartmouth. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, she left us way, way too soon. And, you know, real tragedy. Now, was the Peace Corps next or did you go to graduate school next? So uh, I worked for one field season up in the White Mountains taking meteorological data when traipsing around the White Mountains (laughs) and then uh, went to the Peace Corps uh, down in Costa Rica. And, uh, you know, that was a very formative experience for me, Um, just first long term. Well, I guess I had been in Kenya for six months during college. I took a took a term off and did, a, did an off-campus program in Kenya. So I had kind of some environment, some international kind of exposure to developing country, but really, you know, being tasked with going and making a positive difference um, in, in a place uh, that you had to really learn about from scratch, I think was uh, empowering, but it was also very humbling. Um, and, and it was, you know, Peace Corps is a great, a great program. I mean, it certainly 
the Peace Corps volunteers get a lot more out of it than the communities as a rule. <laughs> but but uh, I think it does build build uh, you know friendship and, and solidarity as well. Well, is that what sparked this interest? You went to work for NRECA, the National Rural Electric Cooperatives Association International, I guess, International Division. Is that right. what sparked your interest in working internationally or? Um, so I knew I wanted to work internationally. I mean, certainly the Peace Corps, you know, sort of opened my eyes to Latin America. And I, to this day, I have a love for Latin America that's super deep in my heart. And um, in fact, my daughter's spring break was last week and we spent the week in Medellin, Colombia. Um just to go check it out. And um, so I came back from the Peace Corps to go to grad school for the first time uh, at UC Berkeley at the Energy and Resources Group. And um, that was my indoctrination into, or just my exposure to energy efficiency and, you know, just being in the same room with Art Rosenfeld and, you know, um, Ed Vine, Marianne Piet, you know, just lots of Mark Levine, just really smart Chuck Goldman, um, just being you know on the same floor with all of these icons of, uh, of just good energy management and, and just solid research and understanding and, and uh, innovation in the energy space. And so um, you know LBNL is just one of the global nodes for efficiency work and research policy, um, amazing resource that we have here in the state. So, so that so I was there for two years, and then actually to write my master's project, I cut a deal with NRACA, my then manager there. They had a short-term consulting gig actually that I uh, um, that I took, and I went down to, to Bolivia for you know six weeks, and then two months, and then six months, and then they just hired me. <laughs> so I ended up staying in Bolivia for seven years, and uh, wrote my master's thesis from Hotel Copacabana in La Paz, Bolivia, which. Uh, was the same place that Che Guevara stayed when he was through La Paz. <laughs> Little tidbit. But uh, so, yeah, that was a beautiful experience uh, just doing rural electrification and actually industrial load management, working on both the efficiency side and the renewable side um, in, a, in a sometimes a challenging environment, but also one that was really open for, uh, for interesting things and projects and new technologies, which solar then was, right, in the early 90s. How, how close did you get to actual installs? Were you, were you ever? Oh, I've, I've done it, the hundreds of installs with these hands. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. I mean, that was an engineering, it was an engineering job more than more than really anything else. Um, specking and importing equipment and, you know, there were simple systems, but back then, you know, we didn't have the power electronics that we have now. So we had square wave inverters and, uh, you know, lead acid, flooded lead acid batteries. And, you know, that was that was what there was. And uh, so what, what got you back to the States then? It sounds like you were leading a, a meaning, a life of meaning and adventure in Bolivia. It was, well, in the 90s was really an era of innovation in solar. There really wasn't grid connected solar. Pretty much it was off grid. It was still expensive. And, and uh, you know, if you um, uh, nobody was really thinking about at that time or could really make a pencil to connect solar to the grid. So, uh, but it, so it was very exciting and really fulfilling because it was, you know, going to communities that really needed basic energy services and helping them figure out what they, what, how they could get that. Um, and uh, uh, so, but at the end of the 90s, late 90s, the former dictator of Bolivia was elected as the president and uh, it sort of changed the tenor um, of, of the engagement um, there. And I, I think, you know, closed off some doors of collaboration. 
uh, for me and, and, and my learning curve was kind of leveling off anyway. So I decided to come back and go back to grad school at the same program and, and try to get a PhD. Which you did. Which I, did, I eventually did. It took me a while, but I had a lot of starts and stops. <laughs> so yeah, in a proud Berkeley tradition. <laughs> well, then I think I, when I first met you, you were working at the Center for Sustainable Energy down in San Diego. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the, one of the distractions actually uh, before, uh, you know, finally buckling down and finishing my, my dissertation. But uh, that, that's a leading, you know, nonprofit based in San Diego that uh, we were administering the California Solar Initiative in SDG and service territory. We were doing a lot of energy efficiency, the self-generation incentive program. We were just really the only non-utility that was administering these programs. And I think that was a very kind of, um, in a way, powerful place to be because, you know, I think the Public Utilities Commission looked to us to sort of speak the truth and not be wrapped up in that whole, um, you know, the regulated environment that the utilities were. And, and, you know, they're all good people. I'm not knocking anybody, but I think we, we really had a sort of a solutions-based approach to those programs and really zero conflicts um, in terms of wanting to just do the right thing and get solar out there and get these new technologies out there to take advantage of these programs. Is it still going strong? Uh, well, the, uh, the Center for Sustainable Energy? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they dropped the California CSE and not CCSE and now, and, uh, yeah. and they've had, uh, they've opened offices in other parts of the country. Um, and, you know, I think they're doing quite well. So tell me, how did it come about for you to become a commissioner of the California Energy Commission, which is a, just a huge, hugely wonderful step? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, to some extent, well, I, I mean, uh, I don't, I probably don't even know the whole story. Right. Um, but uh, I think, uh, at that time, you know, Jerry Brown had become, had just become governor for the second time. Um, and uh, so he was in his, his third of fourth, of four, third of four terms overall, right? Yeah. And uh, I kind of got recruited by some locals in San Diego with the idea that, you know, the tail end of the state is just not represented on the major commissions. And um, Southern California in general just, you know, wasn't maybe heard at, at, in Sacramento as much as some folks started, uh, you know, some folks thought it should be. And certainly San Diego, you know, being on the other side of L.A., you know, it, it's kind of not a policy, you know, Mecca. And I think um, kind of felt taken for granted. And so I sort of reluctantly said, OK, well, I'll apply. Uh, but, you know, I really enjoyed what I was doing at, at the center. And uh, so I applied and uh, kind of just. Um, that was that for a little while. Um, but I did get a call from the governor's office. Um, and, and I knew some folks there, you know, Cliff Rekshoffen, who was with Jerry Brown during some really formative years of, uh, of the energy policy development in the state, Ken Alex um, as well. And, uh, you know, Cliff gave me a call and said, oh, you know, you're on the short list, but we're not going to go for you, you know, this time. And, uh, and that was Carla Peterman who got that appointment, uh, that, that first appointment in, in year one of Jerry Brown. Uh, of Brown too. And then, um, so I, I was kind of relieved actually, and sort of, okay, went back to what I was doing. And then a year went by, there was another spot in the commission that opened up. And that's when they said, okay, are you still interested? Cause you know, we, we, we think you could do some good up here. And, and I took the plunge, you know, I, my, uh, my wife, Leslie was, uh, you know, she had just gotten tenure at, at USD law school and, and, uh, but you know, we were all game. So we took the plunge. God, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. And then what has been the best thing about it? I think you 
alluded to this uh, prior or, or a little earlier, just the sense of fulfillment, being able to do something on scale. But how would you articulate that? What's been the best thing at the commission for you? Um, that's a great question. Um, you know, the Energy Commission is known across the world for kind of starting building energy efficiency standards, appliance efficiency standards, you know, back in the 70s, back in the Art Rosenfeld days, when it was kind of a small heady group that was inventing this thing called energy efficiency. And I think um, the it's matured over the decades since. And we really have a process that's well-defined and it produces results. And so I feel like uh, this is my first time in state service, certainly. The only other time in government service was, was in the Peace Corps. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the, I think folks like to diss government, you know, as being bureaucratic and slow and all that. But I think actually in California, I have taken heart actually from being in this position because I see the process. I see the dedicated people who are behind the process. And I've seen time after time that the process of developing, um, you know, even from before the statute exists through the statute and then into the regulatory process, uh, there's a lot of embedded wisdom in that process and it works. You know, it's basically a manifestation of California's robust democracy, which, you know, it's easy for people who aren't in California to take pot shots at us. Oh, we're crazy California and so much regulation, yada, yada. But it is actually regulation that works and that our populace supports. And if it's done right, it has a huge positive impact. And so the process ensures that it's done right. And, and so I, I, I really lean on the process. Um, so to answer your question, I think just having some, some known, very effective levers to do good um, in a way that only the state can is uh, just, a, it's a blessing. It really is um, to be able to, you know, uh, uh, be fair and inclusive and have a rigorous process that gets everybody at the table to figure stuff out. That's just, there's a lot of power in that. And I just uh, really have uh, felt a lot of gratitude, feel a lot of gratitude for being able to be in a position to help usher that process forward. And you, you, you mentioned Art Rosenfeld, uh, I think uh, already, who was at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, of course, for yeah. years, and then he became a commissioner uh, at the yeah. DC, and uh, I think he always it, said it was the best job he ever had. And, it, and in his <laughs> honor, we now have a unit of energy, right, or a unit of power. Isn't the 500 megawatt coal plant considered, or 500 megawatts of capacity is one Rosenfeld? Or yeah, I think it's a, I think it's an energy metric. So it's it energy? the energy that 500 megawatts of coal produces over the course of a year. I think it's is in the gigawatt hours or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I mean, that's a, a heady. Uh, um, group of uh you know original thinkers that sort of came up together with art with you know what we now refer to as the energy efficiency industry and chris caldwell you know and john Cumi and a few others came up with that metric for art yeah it's really it's really touching it's great um now uh, am i right that in january of this year uh the standard or the title 24 uh requirement for solar and new commercial construction took place yeah, so some some selected non-residential uh, buildings and multifamily. Um, the, the it had been as of 2020, there had been a solar requirement for single-family residential, and we expanded that somewhat into some non-residential. Um, and we're talking. Um, I won't I won't be able to just you know uh, rattle off the whole list, uh, but it's 
Um, oh, there was the grocery stores and hospitals yeah. and hotels and all yeah, exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Places I, 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 I mean, where it makes sense. One of the big and bold steps was to require solar on all new residential construction. And that started in 2020. I thought all commercial was not going to start until 2030. But Well, so Diane Grunick, back in her days at the CPUC, um, did that Big Bolt Strategies, which is what you're referring to. And, and um, you know, required solar came out of that as one of, I think, four Big Bolt Strategies for the long term. Um, it might even have been net zero energy buildings. Um, but uh, I think that's the way it was articulated then. You know, since then, a lot of water under the bridge. I mean, you know, you don't, since we, since then, we have actually adopted, you know, goals, SB 32 and SB 100. And, you know, we actually are under a statutory requirement that we clean up our grid, our electric grid to be 100% carbon free by 2045. And we're well on the way to doing that. And so with that context, um, you know, it doesn't make that a fundamental difference as to whether those electrons come from one side of the meter or the other side of the meter. So, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to get to a clean energy grid. I would argue that having heavy energy efficiency and reducing the overall consumption and then having a lot of load flexibility that enables you to level your load shape out so that you have a better, uh, you know, capacity factor overall for the system. Uh, those are the two most important things you can do to manage it cost effectively. Um, and then, you know, behind the meter solar, rooftop solar is absolutely a very important part of the supply of those clean electrons, but also our large solar, you know, on the transmission grid. I think there's no, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no if, if, or there's really a, you know, a you know, and we need it all. Need it all. Well, would you say that, I mean, it must've been a, uh, um, a significant challenge or must have been a battle to get that approved or to get that title 24 building standard put into place. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I've referred to the process before. It definitely was. I mean, you know, I'm like part of my role is to take arrows, you know, when people are unhappy. And so, uh, you know, I did, a, did some of that. Um, but over, I, I see that, um, well, really every three years, you know, we adopt an updated building code. And so that was a particularly notable one. Um, but we, you know, we didn't just, uh, the solar was not the only thing that was in that building code update. We did a lot of efficiency. We did, uh, you know, we did some uh, joint appendices in the back of it to, you know, promote batteries and, and you know, flexible demand water heat pumps, heat pump water heaters and stuff. I mean, so it had a lot of innovation in it. That's what kind of captured the headlines for sure, the solar requirement. Um, but I think every three years we'll, we have, you know, a suite of innovations that come to the building code and they all have to be shown. We have to show that they are cost effective and feasible. And so we did that with solar. Um, and I think we did it in such a rigorous and robust way that stakeholders saw, yeah, you know, it's going to happen because it's rigorous, it's cost effective and feasible. And, and, and that was actually the manifestation of 20 years of policy and support and development of the solar industry that enabled us to be in that position. So uh, it are really we, was. Are we close to that position now for batteries also? You know, we're doing the numbers now and, you know, the, the supply chain for batteries just is kind of, it's a little problematic in terms of how we're going to get costs down. So we're, we're hard pressed to sort of project costs for batteries going down enough to make a requirement uh, for batteries cost effective. Um, 
but uh, you know we're uh, we got sharp pencils and we're looking at it each each three year cycle. <clears throat> but I think uh, all, the other issue there is that load flexibility has to be valued, um, and so in order to produce you know a cost effective outcome, you got to actually be able to plausibly argue that when you uh, provide that flexibility and it's used to help the grid function, say on a peak summer day or, or every day, uh, you know, with a time of use rate or something, that it actually does produce the cash flow that makes it cost, feasible, cost effective and feasible. Um, and so the rate environment, you know, at the Public Utilities Commission and the POU, you know, boards needs to evolve to sort of unlock that cost effectiveness for those kinds of end uses. Right. Very interesting. Let's talk decarbonization for a minute. I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, it just seems to me that our challenge, you mentioned the utilities have to be 100% green by 2045, I guess it is in California. Um, and, and then we've got uh, this big challenge of uh, decarbonizing where we're, we want to get rid of all the natural gas use in buildings and back east, of course, it's other fossil fuels. And then at the same time, we want to take all the cars get rid of the internal combustion engines and throw that onto the grid. Uh, we're doing pretty well, but can we handle these big additions to our power grid while, while still attaining our greening goals for the grid? So you're asking a common question, uh, you know, can we handle all this new load from transportation and buildings um, and industry actually, as we electrify some of the thermal processes uh, in industry uh, across the state. And I, I rely on, um, kind of structural thinking about how investments are actually made in the grid and how rates ensure and rate making ensures that um, cost recovery takes place and that those capital investments are actually paid for. And so the we are going to see, we're not quite, it's just starting to appear, we're seeing this growth in uh, electricity consumption, uh, largely due to transportation electrification, uh, and it'll get to buildings. Buildings will will you know be another wedge that grows, uh, and some of the industrial stuff, um, industrial process shifts will also create some upward pressure or upward consumption. Um, so, as that takes place, and as we capture that in the forecast, so the Energy Commission does the forecast every two years, a full forecast of energy demand in the state across electricity, gas, liquid fuels. We're now doing, you know, and incorporating a, a rooftop solar forecast and a fuel switching forecast and a transportation electrification forecast. And all of that rolls up into the state's energy demand forecast. That forecast will capture these trends. Uh, we're, we're really doing a lot of scenario analysis uh, to make sure that the realm of possibility is kind of captured in the various scenarios. And then we kind of come down, we think this is the most reasonable one. Well, there's an executive order that you know all light duty passenger vehicles are going to be electric by 2035, and so that's a that's a policy scenario that's going to capture that consumption. And so knowing that that forecast, then every two years it goes over to an update every other year, right? Uh, goes to the PUC so that they can order the utilities to do the proper amount of procurement. That also works its way into the, the distribution system investment plans that the utilities put together. Okay, we're gonna need all this, you know, reconductoring or you know, new transformers, whatever. And then that goes into the rate base. And so that process really can't capture these forward costs in my view. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's out of phase maybe a, a couple a couple few years, but, uh, but I think we have the apparatus to kind of get ahead of that. 
And then it also goes over the forecast to uh, CAISO so they can do transmission planning. And so our forecast is incorporated into their uh, transmission plan that they do periodically as well. So, uh, you know, I think our planning, our structure for planning investment across the electric grid can capture the load growth. Uh, but it is a new paradigm. You know, we're also going to be bringing a lot of renewables onto the grid every year, year after year, and a lot of batteries. And so, um, you know, those, those transmission investments and distribution plans, um, investment plans uh, really take on kind of new urgency to get it right every, every time they're, they're updated. So the common question uh, has an answer that I, I think you're pretty optimistic, Andrew, that if you get your, if you get your market signals right, you do your proper planning, you get the pricing correct out there into the market, that the resources will follow. I think that's right. I mean, I think the some of the challenges, I mean, I am optimistic because I, I know how many, you know, smart, dedicated uh, people are, are working on this. Alignment from across all the agencies, the governor's office, key people in the legislature. You know, I just think that the, the policy apparatus is ha, has embraced uh, the clean energy transformation. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to be straightforward in all cases. I mean, you know, we still have siting for power, the various kinds of, uh, of generation facilities um, for transmission. You know, those projects take a lot of effort and a lot of planning, and we do have to get better at, uh, at speeding that process up because, uh, you know, we can't, we don't have 10 years to build um, these facilities or transmission lines. Uh, so we have to make sure that we're able to site, site and build, you know, so that's a, that's a big project in the state. Uh, a lot of jobs, uh, you know, a lot of upside for our economy. Um, and so I think there, there's, you know, the winds are blowing in the right direction, but we got to, we got to get it done. Yeah, good stuff. Last couple of questions. Uh, you mentioned your house earlier in the, in the, in the podcast. And I, you, I think you said it's, it's comfortable and it's serving you well. Uh, Talk, talk about it. I mean, you brought you going from this great statewide policy level. I know you've been working nationally and internationally, but then here you are in this home. What's what's great about it? Well, uh, I, I appreciate the question. I mean, uh, you know, I wanted to put myself through the California building code, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I make everybody else do it. I got to walk the walk here. Um, and I did have the opportunity uh, to kind of score uh, sort of the worst house on a really nice block in Davis uh, where we live. And um, initially was going to update the house and sort of figure out how we could retrofit it, but pretty quickly realized that, you know, it was an old cinder block house from the early fifties. And um, it just, it was going to be very difficult and challenging to upgrade it. So we used the slab, but we raised the house uh, and built new. And so uh it's got, you know, thick walls and triple pane windows and, and you know, no thermal bre thermal breaks, uh, you know, across the, or no thermal connectivity, you know, across the walls. It's got thermal breaks between the, in the indoor, you know, inside and outside. Um, and uh, that's the essence of a super efficient house is the, is the, the envelope, the building shell. Um, and then just all heat pumps all around and, and uh, you know, it's not it's not rocket science. I mean, these technologies are off the shelf technologies, but how you integrate them, how you build them together, that attention to detail really matters. So uh, it's so close to downtown Davis. It's in central Davis. My my next door neighbor is actually a fraternity. <laughs> okay, so it's right across the street from UC Davis, right? So the the Pike House is right is my back door neighbor. 
And uh, they, every now and then, you know, have big parties, springtime, after midterms, after finals, they'll, they'll, they'll tear it out, you know, and uh, I can't hear almost anything in the house. And that has turned out to be a very, uh, you know, positive uh, outcome or benefit of a uh, of passive house, it's super quiet. The indoor air quality is great. Um, it's just a better product all around. Uh, not that the fraternity neighbors are bad neighbors. They're actually pretty good neighbors. But, uh, you know, just my neighbors complain about like, oh, the noise and I can't hear a thing. So I'm sure if you uh, ever need a beer, Andrew, you can just sort of <laughs> invite everybody over. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of connection to nature and, and good land, you know, sort of green out, out the out the doors and windows. I mean, it's all part of a package, you know, it's just kind of quality of life. So, you know, I'm lucky to be able to live in a walkable neighborhood. Um, and, and the house just sort of really supports the kind of um, low, just sort of uh, responsible life um, and, and sort of trying to be low impact in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing it showed me is that it is actually doable. Uh, and, you know, if we, as, as we incorporate many of these innovations into the building code and we try to get to a you know, a dual heat pump baseline for the building code and really go, go. I mean, we're, we're really going all in on electric for the building code, um, that these technologies are available, they're doable, that the marketplace can install them well and, and the outcomes will be good for people. You know, induction cooktops rock. They just are awesome. And so, um, you know, and, and heat pumps do great work and they're super quiet and they're just, so it's a little adjustment, but it's sort of like that iPhone, you know, you didn't know you needed it until you had it and then it was awesome and you couldn't do without it. That's the way I kind of think about the, the house. And so it was a very gratifying project and just actually, you know, uh, we made a video about the project. If you wanted to, you know, post that into the posting for this, um, you know, put the link in the posting for this, for this podcast. I'd, uh, I can provide it to you, but it's sort of, it's a, whenever you have, anybody has 12 minutes to invest in watching a video about the commissioner's home build project. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, listen, thanks so much for, for being the commissioner, having the vision, living the, walking the talk. It's been great catching up with you. Well, thank, thank you, Ted, just for all the stuff you do. I mean, you are a lion in this field and I just really, uh, I was excited to talk to you today and just really want to congratulate you on Ecomotion and all the amazing impact you've had over the years because it's a, it's a big, big deal. We can't do what we do, you know, in the formal government environment without stakeholders who push us to innovate and who figure out the directions that the state can go to get to our long-term goals. And so really, you're, you're a really important part of that ecosystem. So thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. You got Take care, Ted. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.